Well, I do keep your Bible open at that passage this evening. We find ourselves here in chapter 18 in the middle of a tour that the Apostle Paul does to three major urban centers in the regions, three of the most influential cities of the region. He's just been to Athens. Chapter 17 tells that story. Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, in many ways, has influenced, even though it was perhaps past its peak by this stage. Nonetheless, its influence intellectually was still known around the world. Corinth is the commercial center. Multicultural population, trade links with most of the known world. And then Ephesus will be the next major city in which Paul will uh, reside. It was a a religious center noted for its multiplicity of religious and spiritual expressions. Now, each of these cities posed a formidable challenge to the early Christian movement. Uh, if, you're, if you're new to Christianity or you're merely investigating Christianity, I want to commend to you the fact that when you read this chapter, when you read any of the book of Acts, you're reading about Christianity at a time when it had no influence whatsoever in the larger society. It is a small movement at this stage. It is a persecuted minority at this point in its history. And these were formidable challenges to the good news message of Jesus. Could it cope with the skepticism and the arrogance of the philosophers? Could it deal with the commercial interests of the business classes with all the attendant features of a fairly affluent society? Would it hold its own among the various competitors for religious allegiance in the marketplace of belief systems uh, to which it was uh, uh, projected at that point? These are the questions that come to mind in these these three chapters. And this evening we look at Corinth. We've looked at Athens, the intellectual center. We're looking at Corinth, and I want to say a few things about Corinth. First, it was a commercial center. Geographically, culturally, commercially, it was a kind of crossroads of the Mediterranean world. The major north-south land routes took you through Corinth, which was on an isthmus between two seas, the Adriatic on one side and the Aegean Sea on the other. So it had two ports serving these two seas, and so therefore not only was it in the north-south trade route, it was also in the east-west sea route. And through this port of Corinth came goods from all over the world, Arabian balsam, Egyptian papyrus, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, and Sicilian goat's hair. I don't know what that was used for, but there you are, that's what it says. And Lyconian wool and Phrygian slaves. Horace, one of the writers, Roman writers of the period, says that it was a rip-roaring town where none but the tough could survive. Corinth was a commercial center that had some strategic importance. Secondly, Corinth was a proud city. It was a Roman colony. There weren't too many of those. It dated back from the period around about 46 BC when it was created a Roman colony and rebuilt by Julius Caesar himself. It boasted of its wealth and its culture It held the famous Isthmian Games every other year, and it had political prestige because it was the capital of the province of Achaia. 
And thirdly, Corinth was an immoral city. It was known for its moral decadence. In fact, for about 500 years, Corinth was the best known city throughout the Mediterranean basin, and it was best known for its immorality. I had uh, behind the city, about 2,000 feet above sea level, there was a rocky eminence called the Acrocorinth, and on the flat summit of the Acrocorinth was a temple to Aphrodite, uh, or Venus, the goddess of love. She was served by over a thousand female slaves who would roam the the city at night uh, as prostitutes. Sexual promiscuity was so known in Corinth that it became proverbial. There was a verb, Corinthasetai, which uh, for 400 years meant to play the Corinthian. It was a, a euphemism for fornication. Corinth had a reputation as the sex capital of the ancient world. It was the vanity fair of the Roman world. Now, you can imagine, therefore, that the Christian message is going to go down like a bomb there, like a lead balloon, we we sometimes say. It was going to come across as being rather judgmental. It was going to come across in a whole variety of ways that would challenge human pride and human behavior. And it was this gospel that Paul had to deliver to these people in this city. And it was from that city that many would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I've said something about the city. I want to say something about the man who visits the city. Because at this stage in Paul's life, Paul is discouraged. He's discouraged for a a number of reasons. In fact, he tells us he was discouraged because later on he writes on on a letter to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, he wrote, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And there were a number of reasons for him being discouraged. First of all, he was on his own. We know that from the introduction to chapter 17, when he went to Athens. He was on his own. He was waiting to be joined by friends who never turned up, and so he moved on to Corinth from Athens, on his own. Now, some people like being on their own. Some people are loners, we say. But Paul was not a loner. Paul, you hardly ever find Paul on his own. And when you read Paul's letters, he's always writing to his friends, sending them greetings, telling you the names of his friends. He was a man who loved people, wanted to be with people, was at his best when he was in the company of people that he trusted. Corinth, uh, Paul was not a loner. And now he's on his own. His friends haven't joined him yet. Secondly, he's hard up financially. He had been being supported by Christians from other places in the work he does. Now he has run out of money. Not that that's a problem to Paul, because he had a trade. Although he was an intellectual, he'd been through university, like most uh, intellectuals in that day, he'd also had to be trained in doing a real job. It's a novel idea, I know, for some of you who are academics, that you would have a real job on the side, just in case you weren't making enough money in academia. Well, Paul was a tent maker, or a leather worker, perhaps, more, more accurately, by trade, and that was a means of income to him. He didn't mind that because he loved to be able to look people in the eye and to say, I delivered to you the gospel free of charge. He liked to be able to look people in the eye and say, you didn't pay for this, this is free of charge. And now and then in my sermons, I like to smuggle in bits that are free. 
they're not, you know, that I'm, I'm not paid to tell you. Um, anyway, that's another matter. Paul was alone. Paul was hard up. And thirdly, Paul was opposed. He was opposed. Verse 4 tells us every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5 tells us that he devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And the next verse shows us the discouragement that he received. The Jews opposed Paul. He became abusive to him. He was his own people. He loved his own people. He was a Jew by birth. He belonged to the Jewish race. They were first on his heart. You read his letters. He tells you the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the Jew first and for the Gentiles. They are the also brands in this. That the Israel of God, believing Israel, he, he, he longed for the day when many Jews would come to be believing Jews as he was instead of unbelieving Jews. And so it broke his heart. He loved them. He prayed for them. He could even say on one occasion, I would wish almost that God would send me to hell if only my fellow countrymen, the Jews, would come to believe in the Messiah. Well, that was the background to this man. And that is the place that this man comes to. And what I want you to notice this evening, quite simply, is how did God deal with this man in these circumstances at that place at this time? And you know, he dealt with him wonderfully. First of all, he sent friends into this man's life. One of the lovely things about Christian life is the lovely surprises that God sends along in the shape of other people. Peter's, Paul's meeting with Aquila and Priscilla, or more correctly, Priscilla and Aquila, because she seems to have been the stronger personality, it bears a stamp of authentic Christian destiny. God has set it up for Paul to have these friends here at this time. They had a lot in common. They were Jews. They were Jews of the dispersion. That is, they were Jews who were born away from Palestine. They had the same trade. They practiced leather work. And they too had been forced to move by persecution. Priscilla we know from her name and other bits of information we find in the New Testament, belonged to one of the great families of Rome. Her education, her contacts demonstrate that she belonged to a, a family that was connected to the emperor and uh, she was a very influential person. And they'd come to Corinth, Priscilla and her husband had come to Corinth because of a decree that had been issued by the Emperor Claudius. We know a little bit about this decree. Suetonius, a uh, historian, refers to it in his life of Claudius. He says that the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus that Claudius banished them from Rome. Now, most scholars believe that the word Crestus there is an alternate Latin transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is our word, Christ. And the likelihood is that the turmoil in Rome may well have been caused by the disagreements between Roman believing Jews and Roman unbelieving Jews. And that they were hostile to one another. And that the authorities 
looking on, did not see a distinction, just saw Jews arguing about this figure, this Christos figure. And so what the emperor decided was, a plague on both your houses, get rid of you all, send you all out. And he banished them all for a period. It was relinquished after a while and they were able to come back, but for a while they were banished. And at first you can imagine, when the Christians are banished from Rome, you can imagine some of them thinking, what, what, how is God in this? You can imagine being Priscilla and Aquila and talking about it, this couple, talking about it as they traveled and as they thought, where do we go now? I mean, where do we ply our trade? Where is a good strategic place for us to be? I mean, Rome is the capital of the empire. We had a good business going there. We need to find somewhere that is commercially viable for us to set up business and they thought of Corinth. It's a Roman colony. They could go there because they were Roman citizens. It was a strategic seaport. That was the ideal place for them to go and do their business. And so for business reasons, as a result of persecution and having to leave Rome, they choose to go to Corinth. You can imagine this scenario developing. But I'm sure that in their conversation, they must have wondered to themselves, why has God let this happen to us, it would have seemed like a disaster. And yet what we discover in due course is that this decree of Claudius was going to lead to the release of this couple particularly into a, a lifetime of ministry. We know, for example, several things about them. Apart from their occupation, we know that uh, other people enjoyed hospitality in their home, wherever Wherever you read about them, whether they're living in Corinth or later in Ephesus or later still when they go back to Rome, you find that the church always meets in their home. They were successful business people. They had a big place. It had a big enough room for the church to meet in and they met there regularly. Even in this chapter, we didn't read this part of the chapter, but a man called Apollos who was a believer in Jesus had been preaching and teaching, but there was a deficiency in his understanding of the gospel. And it was Priscilla and Aquila took him into their home, gave him hospitality, and gently introduced him to a complete understanding of the Christian gospel. So that Apollos becomes one of the major preachers of that period. They encouraged him. Paul, when he's writing about them later on, calls them his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He says that they had risked their lives for the kingdom of God. So here, here we have a series of circumstances. There's persecution, there's commercial interests, there's a decision made in the flow of people's business lives. They come to a place, and in that place Paul is on his own, in need of hospitality, in need of friendship, his own skills lead him into connection with these people. Maybe he got a contract from them to do work for Aquila and Priscilla. That brings them together. They discover that they share a faith in the Lord Jesus. Friendship is formed. It is one of the features of God's providence that he brings people across your path who become keys in your ministry, in your life for God. The decree of an emperor designed to keep order in his city, is used of God for the good of a lonely servant of Jesus Christ. God sent friendship 
into this man's life. And the second thing is that God gave encouragement to this man's faith. The unbelieving Jews hardened in their opposition. They made it impossible for Paul to stay in the synagogue and teach. And I want you to notice that Paul in verse 6 makes a very clear break with them. So, they're opposing him, verse 6, and reviling him. And he responds to that. He responds by using language that comes from the book of Ezekiel. And he responds with an action which was a prophetic action. In other words, he is acting like an Old Testament prophet. So he turns to them and he says, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, he said. And he shook out his garments. That was a prophetic action. It was a way of saying, I I will have nothing to do with you. you. You want me to have nothing to do with you. I will let you have what you want. You don't want the gospel. You don't want what I have to offer. Then I step away from this. Jesus had encouraged his people. The people won't receive you. Then you back away and you move on. You leave them to it. You let people have what's in their heart. You can labor with them and you can labor long with them and you can plead with them and plead long with them. But if at some point they reject the message in a final sense, then you should back off, move on to those who are more responsive. That's what Paul does. He gives a prophetic sign of judgment. In the book of Ezekiel, from which he quotes, Ezekiel is describing the work of the watchman who's on the walls and signaling danger. He's got a message of danger to the people inside the city. And Paul says to his unbelieving Jewish compatriots, he says, that's what my role has been. It's been that of a watchman. And I've been warning you, I've been warning you that the Messiah has come. You must believe in the Messiah. There's only judgment if you reject the Messiah, if you don't believe in the Messiah. And you've chosen not to believe. I turn away from you. For that reason. So he's discouraged from his own countrymen. And he's discouraged, I'm sure, the moral and spiritual state of Corinth vexed his spirit. And into this context, God gives him a vision. Now, you read these stories about visions in the Bible, and you say to yourself, God's never given me a vision. I would love a vision. That would be a really good thing. I could write a book and make a lot of money if I got a vision from. God. And people do that, don't they? You read their stuff and you think, this is bizarre. Really. Well, Paul got a vision, and he got a vision not just for himself. You notice this vision that Paul got in the Bible. That means Paul got a vision as an apostle for himself, but he recorded it, and it's in the Scripture, because God gave him that vision for you. Did you know that? He gave Paul this vision, not only for him, but for you as well. It's one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit reassured the Apostle Paul. And I want you to notice what the Holy Spirit says in that vision. Because he says it to you as well. If you're struggling with temptation, you're a bit overwhelmed by a world system that seems so opposed to the cause of Christ. If you're discouraged in your prayer life, if you're discouraged by the sheer enormity of uh, of evil in the world, by the sheer enormity of injustice in the world, overwhelmed by the forces, it seems, that are militating against any 
attempt to do good and good work in the world. That's your position. You hear what the the word of God gives to Paul. He starts off by saying, verse 9, do not be afraid. Now, do you think God said that to Paul just because it was a good thing to say? You can't imagine Paul scared of anything. This is the man who'd survived stonings and had sung songs in prison. Could he be afraid? Well, of course he could be afraid. God doesn't waste words, you know. This is God talking here. God knows what's deep down in our hearts and minds. From the experiences that Paul has had in the previous chapters, Paul knew, Paul knew what the immediate future looked like. This is what would happen. This was his experience. If he kept on preaching, there would be a riot, because there had been riots before. There would be a riot. He would be in deep weeds. And he would be imprisoned, or he'd be taken outside and be stoned and left for dead, and maybe next time he would be actually left for dead and would be dead. That's how Paul read the future. Some of us like to read the future. We like to think we know what's going to happen next. We lay in bed at night and we wonder and we worry about the thing that's going to happen next in our lives because we think we know, we know for sure what, what is going to happen next. And we start worrying about tomorrow and we borrow trouble from tomorrow because we, we're caught up within our own world, our own private world. What God says to you tonight is, Don't be afraid. Tomorrow's in my hands. Whatever happens tomorrow will be my will. Not your worry. My will. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. When you're feeling like that, what you need to do is wrap yourself up in the love of God. Don't be afraid. Here's God's word to Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I wonder if there you have one of the things that's going through Paul's mind. Speaking is what Paul did. He did it all the time. He's always talking to people, preaching the gospel. And I think the Lord says this to him. Why? Because he was tempted to stop. After all, speaking was getting him into trouble. Preaching the gospel was giving him a hard time. And every preacher at some stage in their life comes across this temptation when it would be easier to be quiet than it is to speak. Because every time you speak, you're putting your foot in it, you're offending somebody, you're hurting somebody's feelings somewhere, and you're going to have a whole host of emails. And Paul, perhaps, was getting fed up with all the emails he was getting. Every morning, they were coming, piling in, the emails, complaining. And he was, he was tempted to speak, to, to be silent. God comes to him and says, Paul, keep speaking, keep preaching, keep proclaiming. Why? Because this very foolish means is the very means I use to bring people from darkness to light. Faith comes through hearing. Hearing comes through the Word of God. I've sent you to proclaim the Word of God. People will come to faith if they hear it. They'll come to faith through your ministry. How does that apply to you and me? It applies to you and me because we're always talking to people. There are some people particularly we're talking to, and we're talking to them 
about what we believe. We may be doing it gently, we may be doing it discreetly, we may not be piling the pressure on them, but nonetheless, when they ask us questions, we are answering their questions. And the temptation will be when somebody is offended by what we say, or they don't talk to us for a while because they actually totally disagree with what we're saying, the temptation for us will be to keep quiet. God's word to us is, keep on speaking. Don't be silent. You know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians a little while later, reflecting back on this time, he wrote this to them. Listen to what he says. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. I didn't use my rhetorical techniques. I didn't use the fancy methods of the philosophers. I know that I could persuade you by using those things, but at the end of the day, if I did persuade you, your faith would rest on human wisdom rather than on the power of God. So don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I am with you. I am with you. Verse 10. It's a virtual repetition of the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that phrase of Jesus goes right back to the book of Isaiah And to Isaiah's, God's word to Isaiah concerning the servant of the Lord, that is the Messiah. And God's promise that he would never leave. I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. And just like us, there must have been times when Paul felt abandoned by God. When Paul felt isolated from others. When Paul felt that his back was against the wall. You know, sometimes you find it. Like that in your life? You, it, coming to church, it doesn't make sense to you. And it's not just because I'm not making it clear. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes, because of what you're going through, it doesn't make sense. You struggle with things the Bible says. You struggle with what's going on in your life. You struggle with somebody's diagnosis, a friend's bad diagnosis. You struggle with your witness in the office or... You're struggling with purity and with temptation. You're you're struggling with something. And you ask yourself the question, where did I go wrong? Why is this happening to me? God feels very far away. And you think, if only I had a vision. If only God would talk to me in a vision. And you do have a vision. You're here tonight. You're hearing this. This is God's vision to Paul for you. And you're hearing God talk to you tonight. Let me... Let me let you hear God talking to you right now. I am with you. You just heard it. You just heard it. I am with you. In whatever circumstances you find yourself in, I am with you. You know, there's a great William Tyndale, way back in the day, 16th, 15th century, translated 
the Bible into English. It's a very interesting translation, and there's a great translation that he has in the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph was uh, sold into slavery, accused of rape, imprisoned, abandoned, in prison for ten years. And yet, we're told about Joseph, that the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. William Tyndale's version read like this, The Lord was with Joseph and he was a lucky fellow. Isn't it absolutely great? The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a lucky fellow. I like that. And if the Lord is with you, you are a lucky fellow or girl this evening. I am with you. Here's the last thing that the vision says. I have many people in this city. Verse 10. Many people in this city. Here was Paul, and he saw the enormity of the task of reaching this city for Christ. And God comes to him and he says, you know, there are city, people in this city and they are my possession. There are people in this city, they belong to me. I've given them to my son. My possession, my choice, my gift to my son. I have many people. The word for people is the word that God uses over and over right throughout the Bible. It translates a Hebrew word used of Israel. My people, God calls them. Paul is saying, my people consist not just of believing Jews, but also now of believing Gentiles who will be enfolded into the mixture that I call the Israel of God. I'll take these unbelieving Gentiles who will be joined to these believing Jews and they will become one mixture. They'll become one new Israel, the people of God. Peter makes this point when he quotes Hosea to some Gentile Christians and he says, you who once were not a people, nobody's, you have become the people of God. Well, this vision changed Paul's strategy. It used to be that he would go a place for a week or so and he would do his work and then he'd move on. Like an evangelist going from place to place, having his little tent meeting and then moving on. Paul would move around. But now he starts to stay places. He's going to stay in Corinth for a year and a half, verse 11. He's going to go to Ephesus and stay there for two years or so. He's then going to go to prison for two years. He has no much choice there. And then he's going to go on to Rome and he's going to be many years in Rome. He's coming to a settled ministry. What the vision thing did for Paul was to strengthen him to keep keeping on. I have a friend that whenever he sends an email or writes a letter, that's what he puts. Keep keeping on. Well, the last thing is that uh, God not only sent friends into his life, not only encouragement to this man's faith, but thirdly, that he turned circumstances to this man's advantage. This is very brief. At the very end of the story is this man, Gallio. Gallio, who was the brother uh, of the famous Seneca, uh, for those of you who are classicists. He was a proconsul in Achaia from AD 51 to 52. And there was a complaint lodged to him, with him by some unbelieving Jews that what Paul was trying to do was to persuade people to worship God in ways that were contrary to the law of Moses. What they were saying to this man, this 
authority figure from Rome, proconsul, they were saying to him, this man, Paul, is actually talking about a new religion. New religions were proscribed under Jewish law. They were not uh, Roman law. They were not allowed. There were political implications in new religions. The, and they, they aroused therefore great suspicion and were a threat to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So it was absolutely crucial when this charge was made that Christianity is something brand new, a new religion. It was absolutely vital what kind of decision would be made by the Roman proconsul. Because whatever he decided would become the legal precedent throughout the Roman Empire. Now what the apostle was going to do was, he was going to demonstrate from the Hebrew scriptures that Christianity was no new religion at all, but was fulfilled Judaism. He was going to demonstrate that the Christian message was in fact the message of God from Moses and Isaiah and so on, fulfilled, climaxed in the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. He didn't get a chance to do that because when he was about to open his mouth, we read in verse 14, Gallio said to the Jews, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, if this guy had done anything that was seriously wrong, then I would adjudicate here. But as far as I'm concerned, this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law. Therefore, you deal with it. I will not judge in these matters. In other words, he was the one to see from a, an external authority point of view that the real issue with Christians and Jews was a religious and theological argument. And he ruled that it was no business of the Roman court to pronounce on such a matter. It would have been helpful, by the way, if other government officials over the years had learned from Gallio's insight and understood that there are limits to what governments can do. He recognized the limits of government. And so we see a principle at work here. On the one hand, you go with Jesus to the court of Pilate and you see a Roman governor who refuses to speak up for Jesus even though he sees no fault in him. You go with Paul before this man Gallio, another Roman governor, and he stands up for Paul on this occasion. And you think, why is this happening? It's the purpose of God. It's the providence of God. God is able to do what he wants to, and his witnesses are invincible until their work is done. And so Gallio drives them from the, tribuna, the tribunal. And there's a little incident right at the very end there that I think captures this story. As they were going, the, Jew, the unbelieving Jews seized their own ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, and they beat him up in front of the tribunal. And Gallio ignored what was going on. He looked the other way. And you think, why? Why is that little bit of information in the Bible. You ever wonder those things? I mean, what, did we need to know that? Did we need to know that when Paul was put up, that the Jews were so cross with their, the ruler of their synagogue, maybe because they'd lost their argument at court or whatever it was, they beat him up and so on. And they were embarrassed. Well, maybe it's just in there totally randomly. You think so? You know when I ask you a question like that, that the answer is no. 
Because if you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, if you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he starts like this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Somewhere between this event in Acts 18 and the writing of that letter to the Corinthians, Sosthenes had come to trust in Jesus. He had been the Lord's property all the time. He'd been one of those people who were the Lord's possession all the time. And in God's time. And perhaps through this very incident, he'd been made to think and he'd been brought to faith in Christ. And what's the upshot of this this evening for you and me? Life can throw all kinds of problems our way. And we can allow those things to destabilize ourselves. We can be sorry for ourselves. Or we can listen to the vision that God gives to his people. Don't be afraid. Keep doing what you're doing. I am with you. And above all, I have got lots of people that you don't know yet, but they may be in your life who are my possession, and I'm going to bring them to myself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us encouragement in your word, and we pray that tonight you would write that word on our heart. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.